It's June the 7th, 2018. This is the Room Now Week in Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, we've got big time and small time FDA approvals in the past week. Nurse practitioners and physician assistants are proliferating in both primary care and specialty care. And sons of gout, is it a rock band or a pro band's worry? First, we have some new information about how to treat fibromyalgia. There was an interesting meta-analysis and literature review, if you will, on the topic of mirtazapine, also known as Remeron, and its use in fibromyalgia. After a review of the literature, four studies were found that actually showed that mirtazapine can be effective in treating fibromyalgia in all of its aspects with significant improvements in pain, sleep, and quality of life. I've often thought this is a very good drug for fibromyalgia in that obviously it's an effective antidepressant which can be used to manage pain, but at the same time has the useful side effect of sleep and therefore is sort of a, a one-two punch for patients who need a one-two punch in a single pill. As you know, it comes in 15, 30, and 45 milligrams, can be titrated up or down, usually is well tolerated. So it may be something you want to consider. It would be off-label use, but so much of the drug use we use in fibromyalgia is off-label. Consider it. AVI announced this past week the results of its select early study. It's a head-to-head trial in methotrexate-naive individuals who are randomized to receive either methotrexate or upadacitinib. It's a monotherapy trial. And after 24 weeks, the ACR20 results were impressive. Methotrexate, 59%. UPA, at both of its doses, 78 and 79%. That's significantly different. The ACR50s were significantly different, as were the ACR70s. ACR70 methotrexate response rate at six months was 16%, whereas the UPA response rate was 44 to 50% for its two doses. Again, highly effective, well-tolerated, no more VTEs with UPA. In fact, there were more VTE, venous thromboembolic events with methotrexate than there was with the JAK2 inhibitor in this trial. So we'll look for more data on UPA as it's, uh, uh, it goes through the development process. The Corona Registry this week reported an interesting study from its 45,000 patient registry. Impressive data looking at the outcomes in both psoriatic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis over a 10-year period, 2002 to 2013. And they basically showed that biologic uh, use rose during this period, not surprisingly, with 62% of RA patients receiving a biologic and 52% receiving a biologic in psoriatic arthritis. And with this rising use came increases in the outcomes as far as CDI, HAC, and other measures. And while all that's great, the disappointment in this study was that still, with the growing use of more aggressive therapies, 35% of RA patients and 25% of PSA patients still have moderate to high disease activity, suggesting that we may be aggressive, but maybe not aggressive enough. Again, we need to uh, do something different, and maybe it's not using new drugs that'll get us to better outcomes. So clearly, I th- I'm an advocate for measuring and treat the target, but I think this needs to be considered. Um, again, we're doing well, but maybe not well enough. The JBMR uh, this past week reported a single study, an interesting study, uh, that was the collective single center experience looking at patients on teriparatide, uh, and this was done in 53 patients with severe osteoporosis. And the observation was 
that hypomagnesemia was seen in 36% of patients. Uh, those who were most likely to get it were those who were older and those who, not surprisingly, had a higher, lower baseline magnesium level at the outset. This is something that often isn't discussed. It has been reported before and maybe should be looked at in patients who are being treated for severe osteoporosis. Another interesting study comes in looking at the utility of rheumatoid factor and ACPA, or CCP, in patients who may uh, be preclinical for rheumatoid arthritis. That's usually first-degree relatives who have seropositivity, and you fo are following those people. They may have aches and pains, but not yet quite have rheumatoid arthritis. This particular study from uh, William Robinson and others looked at 83 uh, patients who went on to develop rheumatoid arthritis and looked at their prior samples, uh, serum samples, and what was found. And what they found was that those who are double positive for rheumatoid factor and for ACPA were more likely to have significant elevations of multiple cytokines, multiple pro-inflammatory cytokines, and also have a faster time to develop rheumatoid arthritis, suggesting that this double positive profile may not be um, a good sign in patients who may be at risk, those with preclinical rheumatoid arthritis. The FDA approved this past week a drug called Consensi. This is the combination of amlodipine and salicoxib for the treatment of both hypertension and osteoarthritis. Wait a second, you say, don't nonsteroidals cause hypertension? Or do osteoarthritis patients have a higher rate of, uh, of hypertension and may need uh, uh, blood pressure medicines? Obviously both could happen, but the combination in one pill it's unbelievable. In fact, this is either brilliant or it's a special kind of stupid, or actually I rephrased it in the tweet by saying it's an expensive brand of stupid. Um, it's up to you to decide. Between 2008 and 2016, uh, an interesting study appears that looks at the use of nurse practitioners and, um, and physician assistants in primary care. Again, an interest, this comes from JAMA, looked at uh, um, the overall use of both of these um, advanced practice uh, clinicians, APCs, in both rural and non-rural environments. And they show that, that over this time period of almost eight or nine years, uh, the, the rates rose from about 18%, 15% to as high as 25%. Uh, and it was higher in, in certain states where there were full-scope practice laws for nurse practitioners, it's not in all states, but where there was, the, the, the number was even higher. So uh, NPs and, and physician assistants are actually, uh, excuse me, this is just a study of NPs, are growing in primary care. I'm, I'm sure you could find the same for physician assistants. Another report that we had this week looked at both NPs and PAs, advanced practice providers, in specialty care. This was, the, this was a JAMA article that I referred to. And what they found was, again, significant rates that uh, on average, about 25% of specialty care practices are more likely to have APCs as part of their healthcare delivery. Um, what they found was that um, certain specialties were higher than others. In fact, across the board, Amongst the, the medical and surgical subspecialties, there were more NPs being hired than there were PAs, with the exception of a few surgical subspecialties where PAs are more popular, and dermatology, which I found surprising, where PAs are more popular than NPs. 
but nonetheless, the numbers are, are impressive, and, and there's a, uh, you should look at the, the citation to see where what specialties are being um, uh, having a growth of uh, APCs amongst their providers. They did not provide um, individual information on specialties like rheumatology, but we do know that that number has also gone up. Uh, our number of APCs in the rheumatology field is estimated by the ACR to be, I think, somewhere around 470 nationwide. Others say it may be much larger, but clearly this number is growing. And for a lot of different reasons, uh, it could be that there's a, a growth of these schools and they're graduating more people. It could be the financial constraints that are being put upon practices uh, and that uh, APCs are a much more affordable option. And obviously, there's, there's, in rheumatology at least, there's a shortage of rheumatologists that can be filled by uh, these providers. An interesting study um, looked at the ability to predict progression in systemic sclerosis. This is what's called the SPAR model, S-P-A-R, S-P standing for pulse ox or S-P-O-2, and R meaning arthritis. And in this particular study, 215 patients with mild interstitial lung disease, they followed them prospectively over time, looking at clinical parameters, looking at their uh, PFTs and their pulse ox measures. And what they showed was that the, the, the most predictive factors were just two. One, the presence of arthritis, and two, the finding of a drop in the pulse ox below 94% after a six-minute walk time. Uh, two easy measures, obviously one you know because you're a rheumatologist, the six-minute walk time is easily done as well, uh, and it's done with a pulse ox. Uh, so you use the time and you actually measure the PO2. Uh, something that might be considered and should be considered in, um, in clinical practice. The Sons of Gout study was published this past uh, um, month. Uh, I thought it was a very interesting title, if not study. What happened here was there was a UK cohort that followed um, the offspring of gout patients. And they had a collection of 131 um, sons of gout who did not have clinical disease. And what they did was they examined them, they did blood tests on them, and they did ultrasound in a number of joints. And what they found was amongst these 131 asymptomatic sons of gout patients, two-thirds of them had an elevated uric acid above six milligrams per deciliter. And that 30% had ultrasound evidence of a double contour sign um, suggesting that there were gout deposits going on in the joints of these individuals who were asymptomatic. What they found in their study were that the offspring that had a serum urate level less than five were, never had an abnormal MSK ultrasound for double contour sign, but that you, when you went from uh, less than five to five to six, 25% or quarter or so uh, actually had ultrasonographic evidence of uh, urate deposits on cartilage suggesting that this is a preclinical form of gout and that these people could be followed and studied as well. Uh, I'm not saying that every person who has a, uh, a child that should, should undergo ultrasound, but it may be an interesting way of looking further into the early pathogenesis of gout and maybe how we progress from preclinical disease to actually clinically manifest gout. And then there's an interesting study that comes from the Toronto Lupus study. This is a, um, a uh, cohort of patients were diagnosed with lupus, 267 patients. This is a study led by Murray Urowitz and colleagues in Toronto. 
And what they described was a, a cohort, a small cohort of patients who had sustained remission and were off of drugs after the onset of, of their lupus. So to get to this point, you actually had to sleep, have a sleet eye of, of zero, um, and, that had, and you had to be in remission for greater than 10 years and be off of all drugs. What they found that was after 10 years, uh, t uh, was it number 27 or 10% or of patients were able to achieve remission by, uh, as defined in the study. That they had 7.5% who had sustained remission and were off of all drugs for a mean of 18 years. Now, amongst those people um, that went into remission after 10 years, it turns out that seven out of the 27 actually had a relapse. And these were generally after 10 years of being quiescent. Four of them developing arthritis, one uh, a catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, and two with lymphadenopathy, suggesting that even though you can go into remission, it may not stay in remission, uh, and that these, these patients need to be followed chronically over time. Uh, and lastly, uh, the FDA approved last Friday, when we went to press on our last edition of the Room Now We Can Review, the FDA approved in the morning baricitinib at the low dose of two milligrams once a day. This is uh, now the second JAK inhibitor to be on the market. It's a, certainly a major advance in therapeutics for rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and in, in this article that we uh, did on Friday and then updated on Monday, we review some of the finer points that, um, regarding the use of this drug. So number one, it was recommended by the Arthritis Advisory Committee to approve this drug. Number two, there are box warnings for serious infections, TB, um, a risk of cancer and lymphoma, and the risk of venous thromboembolic events, including DVT and PE. It can be used as monotherapy or in combination. The dose is two milligrams once a day. Uh, there are no uh, uh, data about dose ranging. Actually, the drug, the drug was approved based on uh, studies involving 1,253 patients. Um, the one limitation here is that patients need to have failed one or more TNF inhibitors. You need to be on the lookout for uh, lymphopenia, neutropenia, anemia, hyperlipidemia. Uh, you need to have a TB test prior to, to use. It is not recommended for patients who have moderate to severe uh, renal disease or severe renal impairment, and the risk of zoster is about 1 to 1.4%. That's it for this week at RoomNow.com. Go to the, the website to find these citations and read more. Be sure to follow us next week when we'll be report reporting from ULAR with a lot of good new information from ULAR. Take care and thanks.